following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. Please turn to Mark chapter 10. We're reading verses 17 to 31, and then, as usual, we'll go to the Lord in prayer, asking for him to meet with us this morning and teach us from his word. So please look at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, I'm reminded of the old saying to pastors that our job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I fear that this morning um, there are many of us in this room, myself first and foremost, who really need to be afflicted today. And so I pray that you will do that. Um, I pray that your spirit will be active here in our midst that you will not allow us to hide behind our own made-up excuses, our own made-up worldviews and scenarios that so often excuse ourselves, our sins, uh, but rather, Father, that you will expose those things to our hearts, make it very clear how it is that we ought to be living, what it is we ought to be trusting in, finding our happiness in, our security in. And so please speak to us from your word this morning. Make it clear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're coming to the fourth and final scene here in Jesus' response to the disciples' failure to understand how his kingdom will be ordered. As Chris reminded us a few weeks ago when he was preaching on the third scene, Jesus with the children, you know, we've come to this second failure cycle where Jesus has predicted his death and immediately afterwards the disciples failed to understand it, in this particular uh, uh, cycle that we're in, 
the failure was related to how things will be ordered in the kingdom of God. The disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest, who would be the, the megas in his kingdom. They were thinking rank and position and superiority. They're really just thinking like the world thinks. That's all they're doing. They're, the world, when it thinks about kingdoms and it thinks about order, it, it instantly puts people into a hierarchy, and so they are having that conversation. And so Jesus corrects them there starting in chapter 9 by informing, informing them that in his kingdom, the order is going to be a little different because in his kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. You see that in chapter 9, verse 35. And having informed them of this, Mark gives us these four scenes that are all designed to illustrate that very point. The first three scenes that we looked at were similar in that in each case we saw Jesus siding with or defending, identifying with one or all of the above with people who would be considered last in his culture. Okay, so in his specific day, in his specific context, these are people that would be nobodies. And Jesus comes along, and in the particular scene that they're in, in the particular context, he defends them. He identifies with them. He makes himself as if one with them, which really was shocking and, and surprising in his context because these are the people who, in effect, are practical illustrations of the last in this world. The people who he now seems to be making first. Well, this fourth and final scene is likewise an illustration of the main point that he has been working uh, on here since we got into it in chapter 9. But it's different in the, from the previous three in that in this particular scene, Jesus is interacting with someone who would be considered first in his culture. But he doesn't side with, defend, or identify with this guy. In fact, his response is, again, quite surprising quite shocking, quite unusual in his context because it serves as an illustration of how the first will be last. So a lot to cover today, a lot to cover in a very short time period. So what we're going to do is we're just going to jump right in this morning. We're going to walk through the story first just to get our bearings, understand what's going on here in the text and in the context. And then when we're done, we're going to come back and make, I believe, three uh, specific observations and applications here at the end. So if you will, please look here at verse 17. The story begins with Jesus getting ready to set out on his journey. He's been out in the Judean wilderness for these past two scenes where he was interacting with the Pharisees regarding the issue of divorce and then again regarding the children, and he's getting ready now to move on to his next location. But before he can do this, a man runs up to him and kneels before him and asks him a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Mark doesn't tell us very much about this man. He just refers to him as a man. Um, but all we would get from the rest of the, the, the chapter about him is that he's apparently a man of some means, perhaps even very wealthy when you look down at verse 22. In Matthew's telling of the story, Matthew adds the detail that he's a young guy, which kind of stands out because typically it takes a while to accumulate wealth, uh, particularly in that day. So he's a young guy who's wealthy. Luke adds another detail that this man is some kind of a ruler, though we don't know ruler of what. Most likely, a lot of people think he's a Pharisee, he's a Sadducee, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is a Jewish ruling council there in Jesus' day. But regardless, this is who this guy is. And so for years now, the story has been known as the story of the rich young ruler, though all we really know about him from Mark is that he's rich. And yet, as you can see here in verse 17, there are two other details that I think are often ignored about this particular guy. First of all, he's sincere. He calls Jesus good teacher, 
which is not a normal uh, uh, statement of address uh, to a rabbi or a teacher in Jesus' day. And I don't get the sense from the text or even from Jesus' response that the man is being flowery or, or insincere. He seems to have a high view of Jesus. Second, you see that he's a religious guy. He, his question here shows us something about his religious concerns. He wants to know, and I assume, uh, and we'll, excuse me, we'll come back to these words in a moment because they're important, but he wants to know what he has to do to inherit eternal life. In other words, he's asking about salvation here. He wants to be sure that he has it, which tells us quite a bit about this man's theology. He recognizes that salvation, being right with God, is not man's natural state. You're not just born with it, just right in God's eyes. He recognizes that, that something needs to happen in order for him to be accepted by God. And so he has come to the person that he thinks can help him figure out this conundrum that's in his mind regarding what one must do to inherit eternal life, salvation before God. Do you see that? So, so Jesus responds. First, he questions the man's title for him. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And some people think that Jesus is chiding him. I don't get that sense. I almost read it a little differently as if it's a roundabout way of Jesus asserting his deity to the crowd again. But that statement passes quickly and is not the focus. The thing that really grabs our attention is how he answers the man's question regarding eternal life. Note in verse 19 that he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. How many things was that that he gave him there? Okay, six. Six very specific things, right? Where are these six things coming from? Is he just like pulling stuff out of the air or do they have a, a basis somewhere? The Ten Commandments, right? He's giving him commandments number five through ten, the final six, the if you don't know this, the Ten Commandments can be broken basically into two groups. Commandments 1 through 4 deal vertically with our relationship with God, things that we should do to him or not do to him. Commandments 5 through 10 are on the horizontal plane, how we should interact with one another. And Jesus tells him that in order to inherit eternal life, this man must keep these commandments. Now, let's just pause for a moment and ask Kind of a obvious question, I think, at this point, which is, why is Jesus saying this? Because this would seemingly contradict everything else that he has said, both prior to this moment and after this moment, as well as everything else that is said everywhere else in the scriptures, <laughs> which is that, of course, man cannot earn or merit his own salvation. This is seemingly made extremely clear that no one can be good enough to receive God's favor. Nothing we can do to be saved, rather that we are completely dependent on God's grace and mercy through faith in Jesus, his son, crucified, buried, and resurrected for us. If all of that is true, then why does Jesus tell him here that he can inherit eternal life by keeping these commandments? May I give you two reasons that are kind of, I think, important? Number one is because this is what the man has asked, is it not? His question was, if we look back, what must I do? What must I do? He's looking for something that he can walk away with, an action item, a list of bullet points. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And number two, this is in fact what it would take 
to earn eternal life before God. Perfect, sinless obedience to God's laws. I mean, if you could do that, if you could obey everything that God has commanded, not just these six things, I think Jesus is giving them representatively, and you'll see that in a moment, but if you could do that, keeping all of those laws both in your heart and in your actions, then you would be perfect in God's eyes, and you would, in fact, deserve eternal life. This is what the man must do to inherit eternal life. He has asked the wrong question, and so Jesus has answered it for him, very honestly. And as you can see here in his response back to Jesus, he thinks he's done it. Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I mean, I've never murdered, I've never committed adultery, I've never stolen, I've never borne false witness, I've never defrauded, which I think is like an application of coveting uh, here in the text, and I've never dishonored my father or mother, never, at least externally, right? I mean, he's a moral man, religious man, he's a good man, but he is a blind man who is completely unaware of the true state of his heart, and so having set him up for this, I think, Jesus reveals his own heart and his true spiritual state to him here in verse 21. Jesus looking at him, and I love this, he loved him. This is not a, an attack. He's not trying to, to humiliate the man. He's not trying to call him a liar even. He, he's loving him, and he says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Again, let's pause and consider what's happening here. Is Jesus saying that in order to, to be saved, not only do you have to live a moral life, but you also have to live an ascetic life? You, you have to do all these good things, and you have to give away everything that you own so that you can give it to the poor and live a nice, poor, uh, monastic life. Is, is that the point? No, that, that's not the point at all. To, to understand this properly, you just have to remember Jesus' answer to the man's first question, which was, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded by giving him those final six commandments. And the man thinks he's good, right? I've done them all. I've kept the commandments. I've obeyed God's law, except Jesus knows that he hasn't. Because what is the very first commandment? Do you remember? Here, just in case you have forgotten. It's very simple. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not have anything that demands or attracts your love and loyalty over me. Nothing. And, and sometimes when we read that, we think, you know, he's just talking about people who bow down to worship idols. No, he's talking about anything, anything at all that would take our love away from God, that would take our loyalty away from God, anything that takes that place over God himself in our hearts is a violation of this command. And so what Jesus is doing here is exposing to this man and to us what it was that was holding the first place of love and loyalty in this man's heart. And it's not God. It's his stuff. This guy hasn't kept the commandments at all. He, he hasn't even kept the first one. He didn't even get past that. He's an idolater. His God is his money. And what Jesus is doing here is stuff. He, he's calling the man to abandon the God of wealth and possessions. But as you can see there in verse 22, it's something the man isn't willing or ready to do. 
the man isn't as righteous as he originally seemed. Now, after this encounter, the scene turns a little bit. It turns now from this interaction between Jesus and the man to a conversation that Jesus initiates with the disciples regarding what just happened. And look at this in verse 23, because now it gets kind of confusing. In verse 23, Jesus looked around. Guys left, I guess, now. Jesus looked around, and he says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And notice that that is not a question. It begins with the word how. I get that. And so sometimes we think he's asking, well, how difficult is it? No, no, no. It's a statement. How difficult it is for someone who has wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples' response is unusual at best. The disciples were amazed at his words. What do you mean it's difficult? Okay, all right, whatever. Jesus, perhaps seeing their amazement, says to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Is it possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Sure, it's going to be messy. <laughs> You're going to need, it's going to be like a camel smoothie uh, to make it happen. Some of you are going to think about that one later and be like, ooh. Uh, but it's possible, but it's extremely difficult. And again, verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. Mark is trying to emphasize to us how odd, how unusual, how strange Jesus' comments are coming across to them. And it finally gets them so much that they say to him, then who can be saved? You know, what is Jesus saying here, and, and why did the disciples seem so taken aback by it? Well, the answer to the first question is that what Jesus is saying here is that it's really hard for rich people to go to heaven. Okay? Plain and simple. That's easy. His illustration is colorful and poignant. It's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than it is to get a rich person into heaven. Okay? Simple enough. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. The answer to the second question, though, in order to understand it, you really have to understand the mindset of the average Jewish person in Jesus' day. Because in Jesus' day, wealth was considered to be a sign of God's blessing. All right? Plain and simple. If you had wealth, if you had money, if you had lands, if you had possession, if you have all this stuff, then clearly you must be doing things right. You must be living right. You must be a righteous person who's pleasing to God because God is blessing you. So if you're rich, you're one of God's favorites. That was the general mindset that they had. And, and this is hard for us to understand and relate to because in our day, the wealthy aren't viewed like this. I mean, none of us look at, at Warren Buffett when he's on the news and think, God must really like him. I mean, like, he's got like billions of righteousness going on over there. So, wow, that's really awesome. Good for him. He's really one of God's favorites. And, we don't think that. In fact, in American, modern American thinking, we tend sometimes to even resent the wealthy, right? Remember the whole Occupy Wall Street movement from just like, what was that, a year ago, whatever that fad was? People were like, where are the 99%? And they're holding those signs up. To, to understand this right, you have to see it from the disciples' point of view, their amazement, their astonishment, even their question, who can be saved? It's simply showing us not just the way that they rank people, but the way that they believe God himself ranks people. 
This is what they've been sort of trained to think. And if it is hard for the wealthy to be saved, then my goodness, well, who, who could be saved? And Jesus looks at them and says, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with him. And the statement is true, not just for the rich, but for all, right? It, it's impossible for anyone to be saved on their own, but not with God. You, you see, with him, all things are possible. Through grace alone, faith alone, people can be saved. Peter, though, he just moves on and says, see, see, we've left everything. We followed you. And I'm not quite sure what Peter's point is by making this statement here. He, he seems at least to be contrasting the group of disciples with this guy, I almost wonder if he's trying to justify himself or maybe now that he realizes Jesus sees things a little different, he's trying to like, hey, you know, but we're, <laughs> he's like that. We did this over here. Regardless, Jesus says back to him, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Let's just, Let's just stop and think about that one as well. Is Jesus saying that if we give up our house for him, we'll get like a hundred houses. We'll get a whole neighborhood, okay? Give a house, get a neighborhood. And that's how it, is that the deal? Um, if so, Jesus sounds like a TV preacher, right? Where if you just sow your gift to him, just sow in faith and, and God will bless you. He'll pour out all the stuff to you. He'll, he'll bless you with material gain. It, if you think that's what Jesus is saying, and some people try to treat these verses this way, then I don't really know how you handle the rest of the verse. I mean, how are you going to handle a hundred brothers? Hundred. Some of you are like, I don't like the one I have. All right, hundred. Like, I'd gladly give him. I just don't need the other ones back. Um, hundred sisters, hundred mothers, hundreds of children, hundreds of lands. That definitely works in that system. But what about the persecution? That doesn't. That doesn't work so much. You know what is. What is Jesus really talking about here? Well, not to oversimplify it, but quite frankly, I think he's talking about the church. I, I, you know, in the course of following Jesus, you may give up certain comforts and connections that you had in your old life, but you gain much, much more than that in this new family, in this new people that Jesus is building called the church. I mean, not to be overly like just direct with it, but I know for a fact that if when we're done here, go look at my phone, I see the neighbors called and that our house burned down while we were here, I have no doubt I got a hundred homes I could stay in. Just like that. If I need help, I have no doubt that I have a hundred brothers sitting right here in front of me now who would, who would help me. I mean, I haven't had to give up home or family for the gospel, but if the gospel cost me that, if it cost you that, then I'd We'd have many, many times more available to us instantly through the church persecutions as well. It's a package deal. And I think that that's what Jesus is referring to here as he answers Peter. And then he ends, just again, we're doing a quick walkthrough here. He ends by repeating the main point of all of this teaching and all of these scenes here in verse 31. And he says, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Again, this is what all of this has been about. Now, Let's come back and make some observations and applications here from this scene. And I want to make three specifically. Ran through that quick. Here's the rest of our time. 
Number one, let's make some observations and applications on the issue of salvation as raised here by the man and as answered by Jesus, all right? Because in Jesus' response, both to the man and then later to the disciples in their private conversation, we see from Jesus' own lips three of the basic tenets of our belief regarding salvation. And I just want to highlight them for you. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see them at least said. Number one, you see the concept that salvation before God requires perfection. Okay, that's just true. You, in order to stand before God, who is himself perfect, holy, and righteous, you yourself must be perfect, holy, and righteous. It's as simple as that. This is not a complex idea. It's not a difficult idea. In order to be in God's presence, you must be perfect. You see, number two, that nobody is perfect. <laughs> Nobody is sinless. Here's a guy who thinks he has done it and at least externally probably has. He thinks he's kept the commandments. He thinks he's obeyed God's law. Jesus, though, shows him that he's only looking at the outside. When Jesus takes it to the inside, it, it all crumbles. The man is an idolater who has put all of his love and loyalty into his stuff. And so, and so in the end, you know, <laughs> he's no better off. Just one thing, and I'm sure there was much more. Jesus doesn't turn like he does in the Sermon on the Mount and says, okay, great, you've never committed adultery. Did you ever lust? You've never murdered. Did you ever hate? He doesn't go through any of those details. He picks just one, and the man's world crumbles. So, so nobody is perfect and sinless on their own. In fact, how do we stand before God perfect and sinless? Through the shed blood of his son. As we are made one with Christ, God sees us in his son's perfect holiness and righteousness, and because of Jesus we are accepted, not our own righteousness. And number three, then, in the end here, regardless of our wealth or our lack thereof, Jesus, I think, makes that clear, salvation is only possible because of God. In the end, he says, that's what Jesus is saying. Look, with man, this is impossible, wealth or not. It doesn't matter if you have a lot or you have a little. It doesn't matter if you're good. It doesn't matter if you're bad. With man, it is impossible to be made right before God. But with God, all things are possible. If he shows us grace, we have all hope. If we turn from his grace, we have none. So I just wanted to highlight that so you could see that. Number two, let's talk for a few minutes here about our view of money and possessions. And this is where we need to spend a little bit of time. I, um, I have been thoroughly convicted over the last two weeks now. Originally, I was only going to be convicted for a week. But now, because I stretched it out and didn't preach on this last Sunday, I've been convicted for two weeks. Uh, I have been thoroughly convicted regarding my view of possessions from this particular passage. You know, when you look at what Jesus says to the man, he gives him four commands, right? One, sell all that you have. Two, Give all of that to the poor. Three, come, four, follow me. And I've been asking myself, um, really since early last week, even before that a little as I was thinking ahead, you know, does that apply to me? Is, is, is that a, a normative command for us? Is this something Jesus wants all of his followers to do, to just sell everything and give it all away and live by faith? I mean, can just stop and play that out for a moment. Can you imagine doing that? If you own a house today, putting it on the market tomorrow, selling your furniture and give it away and 
you've got nothing that you currently hold on to and think is so dear, you're just going to live by faith that God will provide, can you? I mean, I guess it's a scary thought. I, I don't know if I'm being spiritual, unspiritual, realistic, sinful. I don't know what I'm being. I'm just saying when I think about that and I really like play that out, that, that scares me and it probably shouldn't, but is, is, is that supposed to be the norm in the Christian life? And on the one hand, I think I can say no. And some of you just felt a wave of relief wash over you, which I will address in a moment. But um, I'll give you three reasons why I don't think that is supposed to be the norm for the Christian life. And I'm, I wasn't like searching for these either. I was willing to go this way if I felt it was there, but this is what I found. First, as I've already explained, what I think Jesus is really doing here, attempting to do here with these commands, is to reveal the state of this man's heart. That's, that's the first and, and most direct thing that he's trying to do. This man thinks he's a law keeper, and Jesus wants to show him that he's a lawbreaker. He, he hasn't even kept the first commandment, much less all the others. And so I think Jesus' comments here are more directed at revealing his heart than they are at dictating his life that said the two are not inseparable. Like, the heart is showing itself in life, and life reveals the heart. And so... If this man, maybe that would have been the best thing to do. It would have been clearly because Jesus told him that. Second, I don't think this is the norm for all believers because you don't see Jesus make similar commands to other converts. I mean, Jesus interacts with a lot of people who are coming to faith in him or at least coming to him with questions and he doesn't say to everyone that he runs into, now great, you've done this. Once you go sell everything you have, give to the poor, come follow me. It's just this guy. And a good parallel person to think about here is Zacchaeus, because Zacchaeus is another wealthy guy that Jesus is going to interact with. And so Jesus uh, interacts with him. He's a tax collector, right? He's got all this money. And Jesus doesn't make a similar demand on Zacchaeus. Now, in fairness to the story, and I think this actually reveals a little more of perhaps even the heart here, after interacting with Jesus there in Luke 19, what is the first thing that Zacchaeus says he's going to do? I'm going to give away half of my goods to the poor. And the second thing he's going to do is says, is if I, I've defrauded anyone, I'll repay them fourfold. And you know what Jesus' response is to those two offers? He says, today salvation has come to this house. See, he, he doesn't make a similar response or a, a demand on Zacchaeus, but he doesn't have to. Because Zacchaeus, by his actions, has shown that his heart is no longer finding its happiness and security in his stuff. It just happens. Just naturally, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do these things. And so he does them, but Jesus doesn't demand it of him. Third, and even more telling to me as to why I don't think this is the norm, is that even the disciples of Jesus themselves themselves retain both the ownership and use of various possessions while with Jesus. Let's think of Peter's house in Capernaum, right? We've seen it numerous times. They keep going back to it. It becomes like a hub for them as they're doing ministry throughout the Judean area. Now, granted, it's probably a family house, but you never see Jesus have a conversation with Peter like, hey, it's great, but I think it's time to put it on the market, man. We got to get to the poor here. Let's go. Or think about the boats of James and John. Peter too, perhaps. He doesn't tell them to sell the boats and let's give the money to I mean. They use the boats. The, the, their possessions are put into use 
for ministry and for Jesus. And so, so based on these things, as well as I would say, which I don't have time to deal with, just the general tenor of the rest of the New Testament teaching on the topic of money and possessions, I don't see a need for us to view Jesus' demands to this guy as being the norm for all believers. And we're like, yes. And yet we're not out of the woods yet. Because as we've already noted, in the end, the problem was never this guy's possessions. Many or few. They weren't the problem at all. It's not the number of houses, the size of the houses. It wasn't the amount in the bank account, the possessions, the clothing, the stuff. It was, none of that was the problem. In the end, the problem was his heart towards them. Had they all been taken away overnight, he would have been in no better place. It was his heart towards them. He loved his possessions. He is loyal to his possessions. And when he's forced to choose between Jesus and his stuff, he chooses his stuff. He views them apparently as his source of happiness and fulfillment as well as his source of safety and security. And he is unwilling to walk away from that. And in this sense, I fear that every person in this room is guilty of the same thing. And you say, that's a really broad statement and probably unfair. You might be right about that. You might be the one exception in this room that is not struggling with materialism and covetousness. But I would be so shocked to find that out <laughs> that I think my, my best bet is just to shoot at everyone, okay? Sorry. Um, our hearts are bent, are they not? towards viewing stuff, big stuff, little stuff, it doesn't matter, as being the source of our happiness and joy in life. I mean, if you went home today, in your heart, don't answer this out loud, please. Um, you went home today and you had an email telling you that somebody died and left you a million dollars. I mean, a mil two million, ten million, whatever. Who knew? Ten thousand. <laughs> Wouldn't you be like, oh, we got money! Yay! Like, I would. I would be ecstatic if I went home and found out that I had been left cash. I find joy in it. Far more than I would ever admit in any normal setting, but if I'm being honest, it makes me very happy to have it and very sad not to. Um, clothes, electronics, furnishings, decorations, experiences, trips, cars, houses... We find our happiness in this stuff. We sit there, and again, most of the time we're not explicit with it, though sometimes people are just that honest. But we sit there implicitly thinking, if only I had this, then I would be happy. This would meet the needs. This would take care of that desire of my heart, that longing of my heart. This is my fulfillment. This is Everything is about this. And, and whether we realize it or not, what we have done is turn those things, some of them even good, some of them maybe even needed, genuinely, legitimately before God, and yet we've taken them and turned them into idols. Not only that, but we tend to genuinely believe that having more, more whatever, will reduce our fears and worries and take care of us in the future. It's that whole security safety thing. And so we think, well, if we just had more income, then we wouldn't have to worry each month. Things wouldn't be so tight. If we, if we just had more retirement, then I wouldn't have to worry about the future. And be like, oh. As if any of that stuff could really guarantee your safety or security in the first place. We want wealth. 
Let's not say it nicely or try to pretend that it's not true because I have never once met a family, maybe unless they're like older and they're downsizing, but even then I'm not sure what the motivations are, and I'm not accusing or with that statement, but I, I've never met anyone who says, you know, we really need a smaller house. You know what we really need? We need less stuff. We need less income. We need, I never, you hardly ever even hear people say they want the same. They want more. Always more, always bigger, always better, because that is the American dream that has been pounded into our hearts and heads since the time we were born. It's the default setting of our heart. And yet, what did Jesus say again? Can I remind us of the, the statement? How difficult it is for rich people, wealthy people, to enter the kingdom of God. That was his statement. And even though we want to be wealthy, whenever we hear that, we instantly give ourselves a pass. I don't have to think about it. I bet you in this room right now, a very large percentage of you have already like given yourself a pass on some of the things I just said. Because we tend to define wealth by people who have more than us. That's our general working definition of wealth. I don't care who you are. Single, newly married, you got nothing. You just look at the, the people who are just a little bit better and you're like, oh, they're doing really well. I wish I was there. Or you're there and you look at the people who are doing better. You're like, I wish I was there. I wish I was there. We always just, we're on a ladder and we always look at whoever is at the rung above us and whatever, whatever rung they're at, those are the wealthy. We're, we're not. Thankfully, we're not guilty of the things that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, folks, in reality, and I think I said this last week, part of the thunder I gave away early, the reality is, is that every person in this room, if you are here today, you are ridiculously wealthy by any normal definition of the term, both around the world today and throughout history. You are. Look, you, you may own your home or not. I don't even care. Your house is most likely more luxurious than the houses of the kings of old. You think you're not wealthy because... <laughs> uh, did anyone... Don't answer this out loud, but if you did, come see me afterward. Did anyone come in here hungry today? Has anyone even thought about whether or not their family would be hungry this week, this year, in your life? I have never once in my life worried about hunger. I've never worried about it for my wife. I've never worried about it for my children. Not once. If anything, we have a problem. We throw too much food away. We throw it away. Anyone come in here naked today? No. If anything, you came in and you looked people up and down based on what they were wearing. Kind of trying to figure out what brand, what style, whatever. Uh, we judge wealth based on all the wrong standards. Not on whether or not we have something in the first place. I am telling you folks, we are every one of us in this room filthy rich. And Jesus is talking about us. He's talking about you. Put your name in his statement and see how it sounds then. How difficult is it for Stacy Potts to enter the kingdom of God? Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for Stacy Potts to enter the kingdom of God. This is, folks, I'm, this is why it is hard, I think, to be the church in America. Why it is hard to be American Christians. Because our possessions are our God and we have become distracted and deceived by our stuff. No wonder then, as I mentioned last week, 
the New Testament regularly lumps covetousness, which I would define simply as the love of possessions. The, the, the tendency of our hearts to put our happiness and our safety and security in our things. No wonder it lumps covetousness right up there with all of the sexual sins that we looked at. You know, I just read them last week quickly to you. As things that prohibit people from entering the kingdom of God and things that warrant God's wrath. I mean, I've heard I don't know how many sermons, devotional talks on sexual purity over the years. Good. Need it. I probably couldn't, I, I couldn't, I tried, I thought about it. I couldn't name you one sermon I've ever heard on material purity. We're, we're very worried about people cheating on their spouses and, and sinning against God and others sexually in all kinds of ways. We all got up in arms last week, week prior now, when the Supreme Court legalized or normalized homosexuality. Sexuality. And as I mentioned last Sunday, though, We've all, 100% of the U.S. population has been living in materialism and covetousness for decades and perhaps centuries, and none of us have been worried about it at all. We run right along with it, and we're, yet we're all up in arms about the other stuff. Look, let's not sugarcoat it. Now, I get it. There's a balance here. You know, we have to provide for our families. I get that. Nothing wrong with this. It's right to do this. I, I think we should be wise with our possessions. We should be thinking to the future, planning ahead, etc. Again, it's not wrong to have the possessions. That They're never the problem. It's our heart toward them that is. And so can I ask you some uncomfortable questions here? If I, as if I haven't already. Um, are you finding your happiness? Or do you hope to find your happiness in Fill in the blank. Your money, your things, your car. I'm tempted on that one quite often. Every time the car breaks down, I wish we just had a new car. Then everything would be better, right? Tempted to find your happiness in a house, that kind of stuff. Are you finding or do you hope to find safety and security in your stuff, in your income, in your savings accounts, in your retirement accounts, again, in cars, houses? Uh, Jamie and I, we have this practice of... Um, when we make our trips here and there, we tend to listen to, I still say books on tape. I'm still old school, I guess. I, though our children don't even know what tapes are. But uh, audiobooks, I guess I should call them now. We tend to try to listen to audiobooks, and we've listened to all kinds of things as we've driven. It was like two or three trips ago, we listened to Ellie Wiesel's Night. Have you ever read that book? I've, I've never read it, but I did listen to it. Ellie, Ellie Wiesel was a, a, a boy when... The Jew, or when the, the Nazis came and began taking the Jews off to the concentration camps. And so he's just writing a, an autobiography of his life, of his experiences going through that whole process into the camps. He survives, obviously comes out the other side and writes a book. But there was a scene at, on the night they're, before they're about to leave. They've, all the Jews of his town have been put in the ghetto, like back when ghetto meant ghetto, like the, the original use of the, of the term. And they all have their stuff, and they're all, like, just in houses. Like, they've just been put in there for that night. They were going to be shipped out the next day. And so the next day comes, and he's recounting the scene on the street. And here are all these families, moms, dads, children, grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, are all together, all these people. And they've got bags, and they've got candlesticks and paintings, and all this stuff is with them. And the Nazis come in with trucks and tell them, leave everything where it is and get in a truck, and you're out of here. And so everyone who had been standing around holding all their stuff puts it down. 
And they all walked to the truck, and he says he remembered looking back, and in the street were like two candlesticks just sitting there. And, and that scene, just as the reader was reading it, has stu- stuck with both Jamie and I so many times and thinking about, <laughs> we put our hope in this stuff, and like that, it can be taken away. One night, they're holding on to their candlesticks. The next day, they're sitting in the street by themselves. And Ellie Wiesel goes on. His mother and sister, I believe, are killed. His father, I believe, eventually dies in the camp or dies shortly thereafter. And he comes out with nothing, nothing at all. And yet we still think that we can find our safety and security and stuff. If we had the IRA that was really big, we'd be good. It's a dream, folks. In Jesus' response to Peter's statement, he defines true wealth really in two terms, the church and eternal life. You want to know where your true wealth comes? Look at the hundred houses, the hundred brothers, the hundred sisters, the hundred mothers, the hundred children, the hundred lands, even with persecutions that you have in your brothers and sisters that I am building here in the scene of the church. And then look at eternal life. Whatever this world offers and whatever it takes away is nothing compared to this place where treasures never rust, they're never stolen, they're never lost. With that, I'd make one final third observation application, and that is Jesus' that the first will be last. You know, I'm bothered by the fact that this man looks so much like me, or at least like I would love to be. Because if I could come to you and say, wouldn't you love to be a a really moral, upstanding, sincere, religious, wealthy person. I mean, I'll just speak to the men. I'll leave the women out of this room. I don't think there's a man in this room who would be like, oh, I would love to be defined like that. Known as a good religious guy who has stuff that they can provide for their family with. Oh, that's totally what I would like to be. This guy looks like the average modern middle-class Christian in America, and yet Jesus doesn't side with, defend, or identify him And so why do we want to be this? Uh, Annie Dillard um, wrote a book where she was recounting the story of uh, the Franklin expedition to the Arctic in 1845. And it was an expedition where the the men who were going, these are British men, uh, they were like gentlemen, nobility, wealthy people. And so they wanted to make this grand, exploring the Arctic was in vogue at the moment, and they wanted to go be a part of this thing. And so their ship was like decked out. It has a large library, hand organ, china place settings, cut glass, wine goblets, and then sterling silver flatware with each individual officer's initials and family crest engraved on it, okay? Not like stuff like extra coal for the steam engine, not like extra supplies or things you might possibly need in the Arctic. And so, of course, it doesn't go well and they all die. And search parties go to find them. And when the, the search parties get to the Arctic, they find clumps of bodies frozen together as the men had abandoned the ship and tried to walk. Like, where are they going to go in the Arctic? They're going to try to walk to safety. Some of them are wearing their, like, blue officer's uniforms with lace fringes. Some of them are clutching china and silverware. And we, we read that, and you think about that scene, and you're like, this is stupid. Like, what is sterling silver flatware going to do for you as you're walking to safety or trying to walk to safety in the Arctic? Men died clutching nothing. And yet I'm saying to us, we are dying clutching all the same stuff. Not freezing to death per se, but you're dying today. 
you're going to keep dying tonight, you're going to die tomorrow, and you continue to cling to the same things. And so I leave you with Jesus' words, that you should lay up your treasures in heaven because interest accrues better there. Jesus, I know I am convicted by my heart's response to my things. I love them. I see it. I, I want more and I want bigger and I want better. And it is wrong. It is sin. I, I don't even know how to respond to it. I, I have had two weeks now of thinking about this and I still just am uncertain where to turn, how to think. I, I just know that my heart is not in the right place towards all this stuff that is so enamoring to my soul. And so I ask Father, in your grace, that your spirit will begin to rid me of, of this love, that you will have my first love and my first loyalty, that I will not seek to find my happiness and my fulfillment in the things of this world, that I will not try to find safety and security in the things of this world. Rather, that I will find it in you alone, because you're the only thing that will last. I, I, I can die clutching this stuff but in the end, I leave it all behind. None of it matters. It could be taken from me in an instant. None of it matters. So please help us, Lord, in all of our, our varying states of spiritual maturity and with legitimate needs that some of us feel and are going through. Give us wise hearts, discerning hearts, hearts that constantly keep the things in their proper perspective and that pursue you first and foremost. Forgive us for not. Forgive us for, for setting our desires on those things and pursuing them with all of our hearts while we just leave you behind. We, we give no thought to that. And so convict us, Lord, I ask. Afflict us because we are too comforted with the things of this world. And so we ask that your spirit work. In Jesus' name, amen.